right. In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with David Sibrian, CEO and co-founder of ATI Partners. David, can we start off uh, first with the wave top, the high level about ATI? And then I have a question for you. That's not the question. That's not the question. All right. All right. <laughs> Good to see you, Jordan. Yeah. Uh, American I. we are a public and private infrastructure fund manager. We look at uh, opportunities in the middle market throughout the U.S. Uh, to invest in transportation, mm-hmm. digital, or social community infrastructure. All right. We're going di- to dive deep into the founding story, you know, why you do what you do, but... The question I would like to start with is, uh, what is one of your favorite books? Because I need to go off and get a new Audible book. So one of my favorite books is Letters uh, to Our Fathers. Um, It was uh, written by a former CNBC journalist uh, who has since passed away, uh, Tim Russert. And it is just a fantastic book. It's, you know, looking at fatherhood through the eyes of both the kids and, and the fathers. Um, I love the book. I wrote it a couple of times. Continue. What, like what, I want to learn more. Like what, uh, what are some of the highlights? Or, or no, some it's just, you know, it's a series of letters. As the title says about, you know, the relationship between fathers and their kids and different things, everything from happy moments to sad moments to crisis to parenting. And it's just, uh, you know, there are points in time where it actually uh, makes you just laugh out loud and other times where it's uh, it's a bit of a tearjerker. So it's a how, great kind of personal tone about what he, what Tim was going through. How, how has that maybe shaped the way that you interact with your family? Well, you know, it uh, when you hear and listen to other people's story, Jordan, it really sort of helps you keep yours in perspective. Mm. And as busy as we get and the stress on the day-to-day, uh, there are key moments in the life of our kids and ourselves as, as parents that, you know, if you, if you blink, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss them. Uh, and I think it's really sort of helped to ground me a little bit uh, reading those kinds of stories. So let's talk about your, your, your growing up. Um, what was your first job? First job. That- that brings back some good memories. Uh, first job was the Big Penny Car Wash in Cerritos, <laughs> California, okay. where I grew up. Um, it was a really interesting story. My, my dad is a Cuban immigrant, um, first-generation American, uh, born in Miami, moved to Los Angeles at a young age, grew up in L.A. He comes home one afternoon early from work, and he never came home early from work. He was early out the door and late back in the door comes home in the afternoon. It was the summer right after I had turned 16. I had a license but no car. A lot of friends had cars. And he comes home and comes in with a set of keys and says, hey, I bought you a car this afternoon. Jumped up, went outside. It was the ugliest looking, used, beat up, Cutlass Supreme. It was bronze colored. It was pretty hideous, but it was a car. And he holds out these keys and it says, it's yours as soon as you get a job. And he puts it in his pocket. So I went back inside and I called my buddy and and said, hey, my dad, the car, I need to go get a job. And he's like, nobody gets a job in the middle of summer. He goes, come over, I'm going to figure it out. So I got in his car, went over. I was in my dress shirt, dress slacks, my only pair of dress shoes. I was going to go to the shopping mall and apply up and down and try to find a job so I could get this car. And um, on the way to the mall, two, two blocks down the road, turns left, and there's this huge help wanted sign in front of the car wash. And uh, I tell Chris, my buddy, pull in there. And he's like, I don't need a car wash. I said, pull in there, jump out of the car. And I go up and I find the the manager looking guy. And I start talking to him and I tell him, I want to apply for a job. I saw your help wanted sign. 
And he said, sort of looks at me all dressed up, and he says, you want to work here? I said, yeah, I need a job. I need a job right away. And right there he gets interrupted by one of his employees who came over. He was in a fluster, and the employee couldn't speak English, spoke Spanish. And the owner couldn't speak Spanish. And they're trying to communicate, and it was something really urgent. The employee was really upset. So I watched this unfold for about three or four minutes, and then I just stepped into the conversation. I said, I think I can help. And I start translating Spanish to English, English to Spanish. This goes back and forth for about five minutes. Crisis averted. Employee has his instructions. He goes off. The owner turns back to me, looks at me again. He brushes me up and down and says, 9 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> so I went back home in less than an hour. I had a job. I had my car keys in my pocket, and we were off. I'm seeing a, a theme, some themes here about identifying opportunity, seizing opportunity, well, hey, it was uh, it was necessity. Necessity. <laughs> it was necessity. You know, I had a goal. The goal wasn't even set by me. It was set by my dad. He goes, "You want a car? Yeah. Well, go get a job so you can afford your own car." And um, you know, I had to I had to adjust. I was on my way to apply for a certain type of job, but there was another one right there in front of me. And the goal was getting a job, not particularly a particular kind of job. It was just getting a job and getting into that car as a sixteen-year-old. Uh, guy, so I adjusted and uh, worked out great. I actually ended up working at the Big Penny Car Wash, which is still there today for two years, and made my way up to assistant manager. Of the car wash. <laughs> it was, I was off to the races. That was before me. Awesome. What's uh, what's the story with your parents coming here? Well, they uh, they're from Cuba. Um, mom and dad born there, grew up there, and in early '59, uh, the world changed down there. Uh, Fidel Castro took power, and uh, by August of uh, 61, my family was able to leave. So they flew out of Havana, landed in Miami. How, how did they get here? Was it, um, was it a certain time with U.S.-Cuba relations that there was a window that they could fly to there? And or sort of. It was the beginning. It was still the early days. It was still unclear what was going to happen. They were still giving out a very select number of kind of exit permits, as the mm. Cuban government called it. Um, my both of my grandparents were business owners, um, and you know they were able to just get in the queue and get approved. So, yeah. my father's parents, um, my father and my mother, they were engaged at the time. They were able to get out. They were able to get four exit permits. My mom's parents stayed behind, and they were behind for about a year before they were able to get out. But they saw an opportunity to get their daughter out of the country, so off she went to Miami, and they landed in South Florida without jobs, without really knowing anyone, and certainly without speaking the language. Uh, and that was in August of 61, and I was born uh, in 63 in Miami. How did growing up in that household where your, your parents immigrate here, um, how did that affect you? It, it affects me every day. It really does. It's, it's ingrained in you to have been sort of brought up in that sort of situation. I mean, my parents were immigrants. They got here with literally nothing. They had a suitcase each. Um, my father was studying to be a mechanical engineer in Cuba. He was finishing his college studies. Um, and he got to Miami with nothing. Two, three days later, started looking for work. Ended up, his first job was as a day laborer working for a Miami Beach uh, hotel washing dishes. So he and two other guys did a 12-hour shift, washed dishes, and at the end of the shift, the manager of the kitchen told him to leave. And he, they said, well, what about our pay? And he said, I don't pay people like you. And so my dad's first job experience in the U.S. 
was a 12-hour free gig washing dishes in a, in a Miami hotel. And he so, had, did he have family? Was it, was it just he and your mom? That's that right, time? and they weren't married yet. It was, he was with his parents, and then my mom was staying with friends, and uh, that was his first job, his first experience. So it shaped him, and it taught him some things, and I can tell you it taught me some things growing up with those stories. How did um, that work ethic kind of play out throughout your career? You know, from going into law and the different steps you've taken in your career to where you're at now. Um, I mean, just what are some more, and add some more meat on the bone in terms of, you know, how it affected your day to day. Well, look, it sets a really high bar, right? When you kind of grow up in that environment, I'm the first person in my family to finish college. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, what's expected, what's required, it becomes sort of the standard. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you just set your sight on a strong work ethic, on persistence, on thoroughness, um, and you get through. You get through. It worked for them. All right, let's talk about uh, another book you were mentioning, which is uh, Leadership Isn't for Cowards. Leadership Isn't for Cowards. It's a great book. It's the one book I've got sitting in my office upstairs right now. And uh, it's just a book about real sort of leadership self-awareness, Jordan, uh, and just kind of how to challenge people, how to motivate people, and how to make the tough decisions. Um, and it's not for everybody, and that's kind of the, the thesis of the book. Did you... Does that book resonate with you for a certain reason in terms of like your leadership style was a different way and then you had to evolve as a leader or was it reinforcing certain things for you? I mean, how has that affected the way that you manage and, and lead teams? Well, I'll tell you, I saw the book. This was years ago. I saw the book and because I believe just in the title of the book, because I really do think leadership isn't for the faint of heart, it drew me to just pick up the book page through it and, and I bought it and you know it is really sort of for me it's been a little bit of the playbook right how to address situations um, and look I, I think my leadership style has proven to be effective over the years in the various things I've done uh, whether you know it was in professional services and now fund management but we can always learn we can always you know kind of determine from new situations new new circumstances kind of how we need to adjust our behavior as well what is your style? I mean, how would you characterize your leadership style? Look, I, I consider myself to be a real collaborative leader, somebody that really understands um, kind of what his strengths are, what the weaknesses are, and that's kind of what you go to plug, right? Yeah. Uh, collaborative, but again, once I feel I've gotten sufficient input, um, I'm decisive and follow through on the execution. It's interesting but, you mentioned that right there because so much of my past was overly consensus driven because that's how I gathered information and then would decide, but I was spending too much time gathering data. And it's like, okay, well, sometimes you just need to make a decision. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I was in a conversation recently with someone and they said, well, after having a sort of 25 year long, very successful, very prestigious law firm career. Yeah. How did you get into fund management a decade ago? Mm. And my answer is simple. It's, you know, when I was a big law firm lawyer, I was selling two things, trust and judgment. Mm. I'm in fund management now. We're selling two things, trust and judgment. And at the end of the day, again, if you're going to be a courageous leader, 
you got to trust your judgment. Get yeah. your inputs, gather your facts, and don't be afraid to make the decision and follow through on it. So I, th I think that um, judgment comes through the wins and the losses. And oh, absolutely. How have, what are some of the, the losses that have shaped you, but it might have taken a year plus to truly rebound from that and to turn that into a positive? What has yeah. been the like, most painful leadership experience you've had? The, the most painful leadership experience is always on the human resource side, Jordan, time and time again. Um, and it's, you know, it's the situation where you've made a hiring decision and you thought that that individual was going to be a fit in your organization, in your culture. Um, that individual, of course, thought they were going to be a fit in your culture, in your, in your firm, and it just doesn't work out. And being able to sit down and make the determination that that didn't work out and having that conversation and, you know, doing it in a way that is compassionate, but just, again, being able to make the decisions that sort of protect the, the, the firm as a whole and that individual to get them to move on to a place where they will be more successful mm. than, than where they are right now. That That's always been the toughest part. Of. So speaking of leadership, let's go to the story with ATI partners. Um, first off, what does ATI mean? ATI stands for American Triple I. And the letter I, the triple, is infrastructure, innovation, and investment, which is what we do. That's at the heart of what we do. We look for making investments in infrastructure projects or infrastructure companies that are innovative, right? Not just the, the toll roads and the bridges and the tunnels or the yeah. sort of infrastructure-oriented tech company, uh, but something that's innovative, something that has the potential and opportunity to really kind of change the, the subsector or the vertical that that you know, particular project or portfolio company is involved in. What was the kind of the impetus for co-founding the business and like why does this need to exist? Well, look, we have got a massive infrastructure problem throughout the country. Uh, it hasn't been talked about as much as it's currently being talked about. The infrastructure bill finally became a reality. It's now law. Uh, there's a significant amount of effort and initiative that's now going to be directed at trying to solve the country's infrastructure problems. But we don't just solve it by doing the big projects in the big cities, right? We need to look throughout the country. So the impetus for ATI was when my partner and longtime friend, Henry Cisneros, and I um, sat down uh, in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, and we were working together as we have off and on for more than two decades. Um, and we started to talk about how to sort of bring private capital into middle America, into the middle market to solve for the infrastructure issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent a lot of time developing um, the thesis and the business plan that's ATI, and we launched the firm in early 2019. Um, and we, you know, we've had a incredible amount of success in a short amount of time, finding opportunities, winning projects. Um, we're involved in projects like the redevelopment of Terminal 6 at JFK mm -hmm. in the middle of one of the biggest travel crises in history, which is the COVID pandemic. Um, that project's approved. It's headed to financial close next year. We're in the middle of it. How long does that take to, to do that project? Well, it, Once it, you break ground on it. 
the our consortium started discussing with our partner JetBlue Airways and the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey in 2017-2018 doing the project. Um, and then we were going to close on it right before the pandemic. So everything got put on hold. We sat down, reworked it, reimagined it. Mm -hmm. uh, project got approved by the Port Authority just in August of this year. Um, and now it's going to take us from, say, March, April, three years to build it. And then we're off. We have a 38-year concession from the Port Authority to operate and manage uh, what will be kind of the only independent terminal at one of the world's most known international airports. Tremendous project for us as such a young firm to be involved in that. We're going to be the second largest donor of that project. There's one in San Antonio, uh, Port San Antonio. Can you just talk about that project? And I want to like really dive into you know what makes it innovative right. and as opposed to just a toll bridge, which important, but right. innovative? Yeah. No, you're exactly right, right? We need a lot of infrastructure. Is that official? It's, it's, it's not, yeah, they, they'll cut out that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep it. <laughs> yeah. Especially since it doesn't have a Spanish accent. No. Um, so, anyway, so Port San Antonio is an inland port in the middle of Texas, and what it does is it's redeveloping what used to be um, a large Air Force base in okay. San Antonio, Texas. That base used to employ... 14,000, 15,000 mm. civilian employees, um, and it was closed as part of the base closing process in the late 90s, 2000. Um, after we launched ATI in early 2019, I knew there was an opportunity to help with the redevelopment and job recovery and job creation, economic development, because I had done that twice before at another closed military base. So we went after this project in Port San Antonio. It was the first project we pursued, and we won it right out of the gate. Um, and we are the developer of a brand new 130,000 square foot, uh, $70 million innovation center. Mm -hmm. And what it's going to be, it's a multidisciplinary venue. It's got education. It's got technology um, and a variety of things to support the private sector companies that have come on that former base to create jobs. Boeing Aircraft is there, Lockheed Martin, Pratt Whitney, Standard Aero, Booz Allen, and they needed a place where they could take their, their folks, their vendors, etc. So we're building that for them in partnership with the Port Authority of San Antonio. It is a state agency, investment grade rated. We saw the opportunity. We closed on that in uh, September of 2020 during the pandemic. Um, we did it as an all-debt deal. Um, and we're on schedule, we're on budget, we should be opening the doors in May of next year, right around the same time we reach financial close on JFK. And it's a tremendous project and we didn't, you know, we wanted to make sure to get it done because there's a lot of opportunities for our firm on that 2,000 acre campus, so there'll be additional projects that we'll be able to do there, but also because of the community impact, Jordan, mm -hmm. it's just been tremendous and will continue to be significant and impactful. Um, Port San Antonio sits in the lowest, in the collection of lowest income census tracts in San Antonio, which is the seventh largest city in the country. And we're providing free internet access, educational opportunities. We're partnering with college institutions, high school, elementary schools 
to make that innovation center something that the community is going to have access to in addition to all the private sector companies um, on the campus as well. So we're real proud of it because it's our first deal. We're really proud of it because it is so impactful to a community that so needs it um, in a city where you know Henry and I have called home. Why do you do what you do? What have you found to be like the fundamental motivations for why you do this very particular type of function and investing? Well, again, we know that there's a real need that's really hurting communities. Look at what happened with the pandemic, Jordan, right? All of a sudden, everybody's learning from home, working from home, doing everything from home, and having to connect to get it done, right? Well, in rural America, in underserved communities, communities throughout the country which sit in many of these federal opportunity zones like Port San Antonio, like you know JFK, like our other project yeah. in Laredo, Texas, where we're building those uh, brand new cargo facilities, those communities could not connect. Those students could not study. Those workers could not work, right? So that's part of the reason that we've also focused on digital as one of our three verticals, mm. in addition to transportation and social community, is because there is a real need. Um, there is a need to improve connectivity. Uh, the federal infrastructure law has made it a top priority to improve connectivity, digital, and access throughout the country for those underserved communities. Yeah. Okay, those are communities where, where our principals, where our partners, that's where we grew up, right? We are Hispanics, we're African Americans, we grew up in those communities, we know what it means to be sort of the last one down the line to get the benefits, to get the services. So doing a project like Port San Antonio, having the economic development impact of doing a mm. project like JFK or doing the Sepulveda Transit project yeah. out in Los Angeles, all of that is impacting the communities. And those are the projects we want to focus on. It's such a uh, underappreciated dynamic where People didn't even have internet at home. And on top of that, London didn't even have computers if they had internet. And the lower-income communities, I think that really came to the forefront during the pandemic and realized that infrastructure is so much more than a bridge. And did we have the nationwide infrastructure to support the broader population? No, that's exactly. It's, it's digital. It's the connectivity. And then what happens? So... People couldn't go get health care, yeah. right? Unless you were either, you know, sick with COVID or had something really grave. So then we went to telemedicine over the last 18 months. Mm. Well, if you can't connect, you can't talk to your doctor yeah. over a video, right? Your doctor can't see you. So it's health care. It was education. It was work. So it's digital. But look at what happened in Flint, Michigan with water systems. What's happening with wastewater? What's happening with bioenergy and what we can do? A lot of talk about renewables, right? But, you know, it's really about transition energy. It's about transitioning from the energy we've been used to to the energy we could get used to. Uh, we're working on a grid resiliency project. We've got a national joint venture we're working on and with. Um, I was in Texas during the great ice storm of February of this year. Um, and, you know, people died because the grid wasn't strong enough. It wasn't resilient enough. So we're working on a joint venture to, through some, some state-of-the-art innovative microgrid technology to be able to create a, a better grid um, during peak times and also during emergencies. And it's not going to be an ice storm. It's not going to be a heat wave that creates fires in the Pacific Northwest. It's going to be a cyber attack, 
or it's going to be yeah. some other catastrophe or calamity that then puts that type of infrastructure at risk. And we're trying to be part of the solution to that as well. What was that cyber attack? I think it was on the pipelines or? That's right. There was a cyber attack on the pipeline where they basically took the system hostage and then they had to pay, you know, kind of ransomware, yeah. uh, uh, green mail to get them back operational. Same kind of concept, right? Where's the resiliency? Where's the infrastructure to prevent against our infrastructure coming under that kind of attack? How does uh, your asset class kind of fit into the broader mix of an LP's portfolio? How should, um, just kind of thinking about, um, you know, the next five years and 10 years, um, how well understood and appreciated is this particular asset class within the LP community? And maybe a different question are what are some of the misconceptions about infrastructure investment within the LP community? Well, look, I think for, for a while there wasn't sort of a clear understanding of how infrastructure fit well into the overall portfolio construction. Um, a lot of traditional LPs, very large institutional LPs, had infrastructure as just sort of a hidden component of maybe their real assets um, portfolio. And that has started to change firmly and finally, right? LPs now understand the, the power of long-dated um, assets like infrastructure. Uh, they understand that the kind of in, there's a natural inflation hedge to having that kind of long-dated um, infrastructure-type asset. Um, so it's, it's really changing, and the LP community in the U.S. in particular has really started to understand the asset class. But we're behind. We're still behind the Australians, the Canadians, the Europeans, who figured out how to both build and finance infrastructure quite a bit before we did. Um, but uh, it's, it's headed very much in the positive direction, and, I mean, it's very difficult to find a mid-sized to larger institutional LP, a state or local pension system. Who really gets that it? Isn't really no that that isn't now really sort of you know setting aside and allocating for infrastructure. Mm. Everyone's starting to do it because it is a natural sort of long-term part of your portfolio construction. So we're at a real inflection point at ATI with everything that's happening right now. Where where does that stand in terms of the? greater context, for example, if you look 10 years ago and 10 years from now, maybe general dollar volume in the U.S. for private capital going into infrastructure. Um, do, you, do you have a, a, a ballpark sense of that? No, absolutely. I think, look, the progress we're going to make in the next 10 years is much greater than exponential compared to the past 10 years. Mm. And the issue is not the money. The issue is not private capital, Jordan. The private capital has been there over the last 10 years and will continue to be there over the coming 10 years, you know, to your question. The issue has been, in great part, sort of the uncertainty of the system, right? Not having uniformity among, at least on the public projects, right, where one state government versus one local government in the same state have different requirements, different processes. It's really tough for those of us in the private sector to take money that we've been entrusted, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the money we raise is from pension systems. Those, those beneficiaries, those retired state employees, those retired teachers depend on that pension system money for the rest of their lives. It's very tough to go into a project and intend on 
spending money on a project on that bridge or on that digital yeah. if there isn't a certain level of certainty and specificity when you're working with that government counterparty right so you know it's it's changing the infrastructure bill will be tremendously helpful but it's not just about the federal money yeah. it's about changing the mindset and changing the way we execute both public and private to improve infrastructure money's not the issue let's talk about the kind of the core principles for ATI. You know, when you look back at the decades of your career, Henry's career, the rest of the team, you know, how would you kind of say that you would characterize the 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 core culture and the core principles of how you have built this in the direction that you're going? Well, look, we have been really fortunate to be able to pull together over the last two, three years a team of truly seasoned infrastructure investment professionals, Jordan, who really um, were looking to sort of come together and create sort of a new template to solve the kind of infrastructure problems that you and I have been mm -hmm. discussing. Um, each one of the individuals on the team has got a tremendous individual track record doing what they do. And, you know, we've spent the last two, three years in getting that team to come together, work together. And the fact that we've developed the pipeline that we have of opportunities, opportunities that are ours, we've won them, we have them under exclusivity, we're working on getting them done. The fact that we've been able to win the amount of projects we've done as such a young firm in such a short amount of time yeah. is testament to the background and to the way we look at a particular opportunity uh, that is unique, it's differentiated from, from our competition, from other infrastructure managers of our ilk. Um, so I think that's, that's the core, it's our ability to come together as a team, look at opportunities through our own individual lenses, but then come up with the right result, whether this is a deal we want to pursue or not, is it investable or not, does it do the right thing for, for our clients, for our investors, yeah. um, in what we've told them. Well, let's go deeper in that because do. it doesn't, I mean, other firms can say the same thing though, I think, in terms of a unique team and looking at it through their unique lens. So what makes you guys unique? Well, I don't, I don't and think maybe that, I just yeah. I, I probably didn't hear it correctly. No, no, you heard it correctly. I think the 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 differentiator is that our lens is not those other firms' lens. So, for example, with the years of sort of public service background that somebody mm -hmm. like Henry does, uh, a couple of our other per partners have, we've got a pretty unique ability. We'll look at a deal. Take the Port San Antonio deal that you know we were talking about the transaction. You know, we went to them because we saw that they had a need and we explained to them how to solve their need. There aren't a lot of infrastructure investors that have the ability because they are not at the intersection like ATI is of government, investment, mm -hmm. and community impact, right? Mm -hmm. We've got expertise in all three of those and those are critical to getting an infrastructure project done. You know, it's not just, again, it's not about just having the money and knowing how to invest the money. It's about knowing whether that government counterparty is really gonna be able to get that deal done. And if that deal is done, right, if that yeah. transaction is done, what's the impact of the community, right? We're not an impact fund, but that doesn't mean we can't be impactful. Mm. So 
we have a unique blend of experiences and a unique kind of way of looking at things, which is not the same as you're going to find with other infrastructure managers. What does the firm look like in three years? Or what time horizon do you think you have a reasonably high definition visibility into? Is it three years? Is it five years? What, uh, and what does it look like? Yeah, I, I think it's five years. I think you've got to make it be five years where you can have a fairly clean line of sight as to where you're headed, what your objectives are, and how you're going to get there. And what, what people you need, what talent you need to get there, etc. I think when you start to get in beyond five years, it becomes difficult, right? It becomes a little more uncertain. And you, what you then have to build in, Jordan, is sort of enough, enough flexibility in how you execute to be able to then adjust beyond that, that, that period. Can tenure plans even exist? No, they exist. I mean, China has, what, the five-year plan? and <laughs> I mean, if they can't do more than five, then... <laughs> they, they exist. They exist in corporate America. They, they exist in, in other parts and industries. But it's about the adaptability, right? Mm. Again, so you can only control so much into the future. Um, and then you've got to be able to make sure that you have the resiliency mm. in your business plan that you can adjust depending on what you didn't see. Right? Mm. It's the same thing we do with our projects and the, and the infrastructure companies we invest in. right? Mm. You hear investors talk a lot about the resiliency of the model of the project. Yeah, the model's well, got to have. And resiliency. I think that this goes back to the earlier point you're making about your family story, about your parents coming here and having nothing, and they had to adapt. They had to become resilient. And other people in the firm probably have similar stories, and that that's par perhaps probably part of the unique fabric of who you are in being adaptable, and that going back into you know, the unique DNA is the ability to say, hey, this worked for the past three years, but we have to do something different. No, you're exactly right, and you've hit on something very important for firms like ATI. We are a diverse manager, and diverse fund managers are consistently outperforming non-diverse fund managers, mm. right? Why is that, Jordan? In part, it's because of what you touched on. It's because we're diverse. We've come from different places, and we've got diversity within diversity at ATI, right? I've got, I, I've got individuals, not just from this country, from outside the country, right? I have, I have professionals I work with every day from the Middle East, from Asia, from Europe, who bring a totally different perspective mm -hmm. than what Henry and I and Gary and Bill and Suzanne have uh, as well, which is diverse and different. So, uh, you know, that's part of that uniqueness is exactly the fact that we're looking at it from very different perspectives. What does uh, what does success look like to you five years from now? Happy investors. Investors that agree that we did what we told them we were going to do. That's success. Because then they'll be with us. They'll be with us time and time again. If What advice would you have to the 20 three-year-old version of yourself. So you're out of college, but you have a, an, just, you're starting your career and you're like, you know what? Hey, looking back on this past 20 plus years, like here's what you should do. A little secret inside ball for career advice here. 
breathe a little more. Don't take yourself so seriously. It'll all work out if you don't quit. If I had to look back in those post-Big Penny car wash days, that's what I would tell myself. Just breathe a little. It'll all work out. Just don't quit. All right. There we go. Investors and Operators, episode, I don't know, 71, 72. We'll see where it comes out. Thanks for tuning in.